I think there's a there's a Let me delay. Pull the end on cord there a second. Uh, yeah. Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Well, hi, everybody. It's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 10 of the Lean Whiskey podcast. We are celebrating getting ready for uh, happy holidays. We're going to talk about getting ready for 2020. And uh, there's no need to get ready because he's already here. We're joined by Jamie Flinchbaugh. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Um, I'm in, uh, in Pittsburgh at the moment. Um, my last uh, week of travel for the year. Happened to be here on a, a Steelers game night. So uh, everyone, I think, in my hotel is is out, uh, headed off to uh, the Steelers game. Well, that hopefully means no one else is consuming bandwidth. <laughs> we've been, the listeners wouldn't know this, but we've been fighting, like, normally I would say tech gremlins, but maybe it's a technology Grinch that's trying to steal our podcast. It might be, it's the internet connection on my end, because um, I'm home and I'm in a condo building where everyone else is maybe watching Christmas movies on Netflix. Yeah, they might be might be streaming the Grinch himself. So, uh, uh, but hopefully we've we've worked all that out and are ready to go. Um, and we we aren't uh, two whiskey glasses in already um, from our our experimentations. But um, you you've you've had a more interesting trip recently than. Than my Pittsburgh trip. Uh, so, can you tell us about your your recent Gemba visit? Sure. And yeah, I was just saying, you know, um, I, I was very disciplined about not, not letting the technology problems drive me into the glass of whiskey that we're going to talk about soon. But um, yeah, I, I got back last week. I uh, was able to go to uh, Japan for the fifth time on a lean study tour, and for the first time, I went and visited a Japanese. Uh, distillery. So I was on my way back from Nagoya to Tokyo. Instead of taking uh, the direct fast bullet train, I took a bit of a, a detour, uh, some local trains um, up to the Kirin Distillery, which is actually in a beautiful part of uh, of the country, right near the, the the base of Mount Fuji. So that was uh, a really really special opportunity to go and do that. That's fantastic, and I, I think a lot of a lot of uh, distilleries, for some reason, seem to be in, in, in scenic locations. Certainly, uh, Scotland, uh, it's hard to compete with. But um, so what you what you get to experience at Kieran? So, well, it, it's funny. For one, um, you, know, you talk about the location. They talked about the water is um, runoff of the snow from Mount Fuji and being uh, December, uh, the, the the mountain was very snowy, even though it was only about 40 degrees um, at the base of the mountain. But you know, he came in and did the tour. Um, it wasn't it wasn't super detailed, like it wasn't actually down on the shop floor, if you will, like I, I've done with different tours. And uh, so you know, I saw fermenting tanks, so I saw blending tanks. Um, I saw the bottling line, which wasn't actually running because it's a Saturday. Um, but still, it was a good experience to learn more about their their what, what they're doing. So they, you know, Kieran, um, you know, people might associate with beer, but Kieran actually uh, produces whiskey and it's sold under a name 
Fuji Sanroku. And they, what they do is uh, a blended whiskey and, and they, they have two different types of stills. So they make pot still malt whiskey, which is very traditional Scottish, Scotch style. And then they also use continuous column stills to make grain whiskey or, or what I think is essentially bourbon. So they, they blend those. And, you know, unlike Yamazaki, which is impossible to find, or, you know, impossible to find at a reasonable price in Japan, Fuji Sanruku is on the shelves everywhere. There's availability. Um, it's about $50 a bottle over there. And, and you know, I think uh, for the price, it's um, a really good Japanese whiskey. There are some Japanese whiskeys on the market that are kind of uh, questionable because they're maybe just capitalizing on the trendiness of Japanese whiskey. But this this is pretty good quality. Excellent. Well, that's um, yeah, it, certainly the some of the purity of how some of the, the, the straight bourbons and, of course, the single malts, uh, a lot of the Japanese whiskeys tend to be much more interested in the blending process and and have turned that aspect into a, an, an art, which I know we've talked about with the uh, Legent um, yes. uh, uh, bottle. So uh, certainly sounds like they're keeping up that tradition. Yeah. Well, and then the one thing when next time we get to come visit me in Texas, Jamie, we'll be able to do um, some interesting tastings, I think. So we can taste the Fuji Sanruku signature blend. And then I was also able to buy, they do bottle and sell uh, pure malt. So we can taste what that tastes like on its own. And then there were two distillery exclusives. And this is one of the other reasons to go to Gemba at a distillery. They had um, one that was a pure grain, or I, I, I believe it's basically bourbon, but we can't call it that. And then a different pure malt. So we can try two different malts. We could try malt and grain, and then we can try a blend or heck, we could even, we could try to make our own blend. Sounds like, uh, sounds like quite the experience and I'll, I'll certainly yeah. be happy to sample with you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would recommend the tour if anyone's thinking about going. I mean, even if you're in Tokyo, it's about a two hour one-way trip um, from from the city out to the distillery. And it's much easier, I guess, sort of like it's easier to buy the Fuji Sanruku uh, whiskey. It's much easier to get a tour, um, the, the Yamazaki tour, uh, which would have been less convenient um, geographically. That tour was completely sold out and um, there was no way of getting in, in there. But um, I do appreciate the, the fact that Kieran had availability and you know they they're they're very friendly and, and put on a really nice tour yeah sometimes it's nice to go a little off the beaten path where you get to you know where, where perhaps they might try harder um we'll certainly probably have to try harder than, than Yamazaki <laughs> because everyone wants that so yeah so that was my that was my Gemba visit and um you know maybe we'll just we'll transition that's not the whiskey I'm drinking uh tonight but um as we move into the what are you drinking a portion of uh, the podcast. Um, Jamie, you picked a, a interesting theme, a whiskey that goes well with the holidays. So what, what did you have in mind for that? Yeah. So, you know, I actually hadn't even thought of this, but you know, as, for, for those that are beer drinkers, there's always a whole slew of, of holiday tasting mm -hmm. beers mm -hmm. that, that come out special batches from the old Fezzi wig and a lot of the Sam Adams and your, your, uh, your Rudolph uh, uh, Christmas blends that the, the microbrews do. So, so what makes a, a holiday tasting 
um, uh, whiskey. And, and um, so, so certainly I think, you know, uh, you, you already get the warrant, but probably looking for some spice and uh, you know, some of that, that sort of holiday spice type of flavoring. Um, so what I selected, which is a, a, a new brand for me, uh, as well as a new bottle, is a, is a Kavalon uh, Sherry Cask uh, Single Cask. Um, it's another one of the things that I've picked up through. And, uh, you know, they, 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 in their description of it, uh, I won't go into all the, re the, the readings of it, but uh, um, you know, they call it a, a sherry bomb. They said it's the hmm. darkest whiskey they had seen this year. And it really is, really is dark. Um, but it's got it's got sort of you know raisin and and, and nut and and spice um, and and all the tasty notes that they include I don't pick up a lot all of but the the raisin and nut and spice it, it is it is dark I mean in a, in a glass it looks like a cup of coffee mm. um, and it is it is layered with flavor and uh, and this this is uh, from Taiwan so that's my that that's that's my choice. This, this is from Taiwan, and, and um, you know, I, it's an interesting tribute to perhaps the change in, I don't want to over, overreach here, but the, the change in stereotype of what Taiwan produces. Because, you know, if you go back 20 years, a lot of the stereotype of Taiwanese products would be the same as, you know, Japanese, you know, another 20 years before that is, you know, cheap, accessible, lower quality um, you know, kind of come in and undercut the market. But, but if you really look at all sectors that Taiwan competes in, um, their, their, their desire to produce excellent products, really understand their products, do things in a, in a special way is really, um, really amazing for the, uh, what, what the population of Taiwan has been able to produce. And, and, and this is one that, um, you know, it's very expensive. It's very collectible. A lot of, a lot of people collect this. You know, I don't know how much they've even had to taste, but mm. it's very collectible. Um, and uh, you know, I'm 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 not sure it's always worth the price that you get because of their limited uh, production process. But mm. uh, it, it is it is art. It is art in a bottle. Well, when I was in Japan, uh, I saw the some different sometimes four or five different expressions or um, variations of, of the Kavalon in stores in Japan. And the prices, well, I mean, it's the thing in general, um, the prices were lower than I remember here in the, the United States. That's true with um, whiskeys from different countries. They have low liquor tax. Um, so I've, I've only had Kavalon a couple of times. I, I did bring back two different mini airplane size bottles of um of Kavalon because i had already bought some other japanese whiskey and you know they're these cute little bottles and i went ahead and picked up but what, what what do you think from from tasting it is this um something you you would go back to given the chance i i think i would i think it's it's worth having a bottle on your shelf um it's it's unlike really anything else in in my collection and um, I, I think when you're when you're looking for a, a sipping whiskey, when you're looking for something that's just packed full of flavor, 
Um, you know, it's, it, it probably wouldn't be my, you know, favorite whiskey of all time, but it, it is, it, it is a fun one to taste and, and I think a fun one to share as well. So mm -hmm. looking forward to perhaps breaking this out with a family over and, um, uh, seeing what everyone thinks. Yeah. Okay, Mark. So that was my choice. What did you decide to select? So I am going with uh, a bourbon. I was about to say American bourbon, which would be redundant. Yes. But when I think of um, winter time, I, I tend to think of darker, spicier, heavier whiskeys. So I tend to go with um, cast strength bourbons, um, peaty scotch. Uh, oh, but before I, I was going to ask you, Jamie, is um, was your Kabbalan single cask, was it cask strength or was it proofed down? What was the ABV on that? Oh, boy, I don't remember. I don't remember the proof. Um, fairly high, uh, decent amount of heat. But I don't remember reading if it said cask strength, but okay. I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't. OK. And, and I put Jamie on the spot. He's on the road and took a, a small sample bottle with him so he doesn't have that handy um do you want me to edit that out <laughs> no it's that's all i know <laughs> all right so i've got the benefit of the bottle in front of me so um so like i said uh, bourbon and this is not a single barrel or single cask but this is a small batch and that doesn't really have a real tight legal definition, but this is Booker's Bourbon. Um, it is uh, a batch from 2016. And, and one of the things I, I think is interesting about these different single barrel or small batch whiskeys, even though they, you know, they all have the same name like Booker's, or if you buy different Blanton single barrels or Garrison Brothers single barrels, like there is definitely a style, but part of what you're buying is what I would call good variation. Um, that different batches are, are slightly different. Um, so this one is, though, basically cast strength at 64% um, ABV or 128 proof. They are very specific that uh, this, this whiskey was aged six years, five months, and 28 days. I don't know how many hours, but um, <laughs> this is um, I, this this to me is a nice kind of warm you up um, vanilla spice or you know like not spicy but um, I, I think kind of holiday spice. I think this would be good for um, sipping, sipping by the fire. Um, you know, you, you, you could add water to it. Um, I'm, I'm drinking it just as is. I might add a couple drops of water as, as I'm trying more of it. But, you know, there are some whiskeys that don't taste like they're 64% as opposed to, you know, the minimum 40% or, or 46% or 43%. Um, like a lot of whiskeys. So I really like Booker's. Um, it, it always used to be about $50 a bottle. Um, the price, like many popular whiskeys, um, has, has shot up, um, I think, to more like $80. But th this is definitely one of the more premium products from the Jim Beam uh, company, or it's uh, Jim Beam Suntory, as we've talked about in previous episodes. Um, a, a different different whiskey that I have visited. So that's what I'm drinking here is Booker's. Have you had it, Jane? I, I've had Booker's, uh, you know, with the, as you mentioned, the small batches with a, uh, the, the single cask, you know, you, you, you do get plenty of variation as well. And one year will taste a bit different if you actually do a side-by-side. 
Um, so I, I haven't certainly had this one. Um, <laughs> right. And, and I imagine, you know, does, do you happen to know the mash bill on this? Ah, you put me on the spot. I do not. I could I Google. Uh, <laughs> I could Google the mash bill. Um, it's funny, and and I'll link in the show notes. You know, there there, are, there is a review. Some whiskey reviewer wrote of this um, this specific cask, but I'm going to just Google Booker's mash bill. And and Booker's is named from um, somebody from the family Booker No. Um, I think I'm saying his last name right. It's N-O-E. I'm pretty sure I've heard people say no. But um, so the mash bill is reported to be 77% corn, 13% rye, 10% malted barley. Okay. Quite, quite heavy in the corn, but um, yeah, you know, I do think, you know, if we're talking about holiday whiskeys, you know, a good, a good rye uh, flavoring adds a certain amount of spice and, and, and I even started thinking about since I already poured the Kavalon, you know, the the, the Glens Creek Ryski mm-hmm. would be quite quite good. Um, so I think when I get home, I'll have to pour myself one of those to uh, uh, to try as well for the holidays. Yeah, and, and I will add here after a couple of sips, I, I add you know, just a little splash of water, and um, yeah, I I, I think. That, that that tones it down a bit. I mean, this isn't the most approachable bourbon if someone's new uh, to whiskey. So I don't know if I'm, sound, does it sound bad? I'm like, oh, I've had enough whiskey that this doesn't phase me. But um, adding a little water, they say sometimes does bring out other aromas and flavors. And, and I think in this case, that, that did help. Yeah, I think, you know, the further that you get into the glass, especially if you're tasting a glass and not just drinking it I mean, you know, I, I, with my own, I'm picking up more vanilla than I did in the beginning. Um, so it is interesting how it can even change uh, while sitting in the glass. And I think it's part of the joy of joy of whiskey. Yeah. Trying. I, I mean, I, I enjoy trying new whiskeys and, and again, I'll, I'll just complete the thought on variation. If I'm, <laughs> somebody ever hits me with the idea that, you know, all variation is bad. I'm like, well, some, ver- some variety is valued by the customer. That, that variation um, might not be bad at all. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, again, you have to know whether you're still producing a quality product and that's what the master distiller's jobs are to, to be able to maintain. Yeah. So uh, now that we had our, our, our whiskey tasting and have our pours well underway, why don't we uh, get back into some lean stuff? Um, yeah. So as we usually do, we, we do an in the news segment, uh, kind of getting some reactions to, uh, to something that we've read. So I think we've both been approached by a, a new magazine uh, produced uh, called The Lean Mag. Um, and it's actually produced uh, out of Portugal, but it's, it's an in, in English. Um, most of the articles in, in issue number one appear to be uh, reprints or re, re, uh, re-editions of previously written articles, but I thought, you know, it gives us an opportunity to talk about an, a new publication out there, just an, a new chance for people to access content if, they, if, if they've gone to their favorite bloggers and haven't necessarily sampled more broadly, this might be an opportunity to do that. Um, so uh, 
So, so we have, you know, some, 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 uh, some of our friends in the, in the issue number one. Um, and uh, uh, so we have an article selected. It was written by John Miller. It's also available on the Gemba Academy blog, and we'll, we'll link up both options for people. Yeah. Um, and, and the article is called The Best Indicator of Success with Lean, which, um, you know, on the, on the surface might sound a little like a clickbait about the best of anything when it comes to lean. Uh, I'm not sure we can we can ever really define that. Um, but in the article, I think John does a, a pretty good job of articulating uh, his observation of going around to visit different companies. And, um, you know, and what he what he concluded was, at least in this article, was the best indicator of success was organizations that had a comprehensive and on system. Yeah. And I thought that was an interesting hypothesis. Um, so what's what's your first thoughts on that? Well, I, I do agree that's really important. Um, you know, when I was in, in Japan recently, it was uh, you know, not just Toyota, but you see companies emphasizing the importance of, of the and on cord system. And, um, you know, you, you, you see that in, in practice. Like, you know, you're going through the Toyota plant and you quite often hear the chimes sounding. You know, the and on cord is being pulled quite often. And, you know, there, there's, there's a bit of a, a misnomer where people say, oh, the and on is the stop align system. Like, well, more often than not, the line doesn't stop. You could call the and on an ask for help system. And the beauty of it is you see this at at Toyota within seconds. The team leader is there um, trying to figure out what's going on. And a lot of times these problems get resolved um, within the job cycle or with very minimal delay. Yeah, I I think that is an important distinction because it really isn't about stopping the line. Stopping the line is 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 really a mechanism to contain the problem uh, right and so the two are related but not directly linked um and, and i you know i was thinking about you know what what makes it a good indicator because i don't think the danger of the of the hypothesis is that uh, people then rush to put an end on system in <laughs> because that makes it lean right based on the, the article but but I, if you think about it as an indicator you know, the things that you need in place uh, to, to be able to do and on effectively, um, you need to be able to recognize abnormal conditions, right? Because that's what triggers an and on. You have to have standards which enable you to, to then uh, recognize those abnormal off-standard conditions. Uh, you have to have a culture that really cares about the timeliness um, of escalating and, and reacting and containing and solving problems. And then fundamentally, you also need a sort of a a management support that embraces solving those issues versus wallpapering over them. And and so, you know, as an indicator, right, if you had all those things, that's that's pretty good. I'd take that Mm -hmm. any day. And and so those are things that have to be in place for Andon to be effective. So he's not saying that Andon causes you to be a strongly journey but it's an indicator of all the things that you took to get there. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, going back to John's you know, article, the best indicator of success with lean, I mean, there, there's a little bit different question that asks, well, you know, what components of a lean system or the Toyota production system, what, what are the minimal elements that are in place to say, yeah, that's lean? You know, a lot of people start 
with 5S and they do some value stream maps, is that lean? So we say, well, that's a start. Um, you know, so I think, you know, in, in healthcare, uh, you know, I'm always happy when I see elements of, of this approach uh, being put in place because, you know, there's a really big issue in healthcare where people don't feel safe to speak up about problems. So this is not about, you know, hanging a literal and on cord in the operating room or putting push buttons on um, nurses' computer carts. It's really about creating a culture where, where it's safe for people to speak up. And, and I think also creating a culture where, uh, where, where they can get help. Um, so, you know, it's just one, one quick story here. You know, when I was in, I'll go back to the recent Japan trip again. Um, you know, when I was there years past, hospitals would, would talk about TQM, quality circles. Maybe they, they were consciously doing five us or they had a value stream map. Um, but in this last visit, I was really happy because we visited two hospitals that are really working on this culture of making it safe to speak up and, and to point out risks, to report incidents. And um, you know, the, these two hospitals both had charts that showed the number of incident reports going up. And that doesn't mean there were more incidents occurring. I think it's a reasonable belief to say, well, this is a sign that people are actually feeling more safe to speak up. And then once people um, are, are pointing out problems or risks or incidents, then they can go and do um, the problem solving. And, and one of these hospitals has been um, getting direct coaching from Toyota. So when uh, John in his article talked about the importance of a common problem solving method, that's that's you know a piece of the, uh, the puzzle there. You know, we, we can't solve problems if people aren't safe in identifying problems. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's where I'm very careful about saying polls because most environments don't have really a, an environment that fits a cord poll uh, like you would see. But, you know, the end on signals or the problem uh, identifications up or down doesn't necessarily mean good or bad. Uh, it just means something's changed. And then you have to go to the to the gamma to the point of activity do some observation and really understand did it did it go down because we've we've reduced some of our problems or did it go down because uh, people have been concerned had too much pressure on output and stopped pulling the cord yeah uh, you, you certainly don't want uh, don't want that and so you you really have to understand uh, with direct observation the the health of your of your system. Yeah. But it, it, it even goes back to a broader question of, you know, why do people want an indicator? Uh, you know, I, I do certainly get the question around how do we know we've made it? How do we know we're on the right path? And and um, I, I, I at some point, I think there's a flaw in the question, because uh, at, at some point you have to always be examining where you are as an organization, look at your system, mm -hmm. continue to evolve it. And um, uh, sometimes the pursuit of declaring yourself lean or mm. <laughs> uh, on an effective lean journey is a is a pointless or even counterproductive pursuit. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you talk about if the you know, situations where the number of cord pulls goes down, the number of incident reports go down. I think one of the reason why people might stop pulling the cord uh, is, is if, you know, they're pulling the cord and they're not getting help. Well, then they might just say, well, that's not worth the effort. Um, so I think, you know, we see different organizations like Virginia Mason Medical Center in Seattle 
talked about this idea of, you know, the number, what they call patient safety alerts, increased over the first number of years as people were feeling more comfortable in reporting risk. And then at some point, you better be solving those problems and reducing the, the level of harm. And, and if we're putting in good root cause corrective action, um, we're, we're preventing future incidents that would lead to an andon cord pull, right? Yeah, and I, I think you touched on an important point around the response you get, because I, I wrote an article about andon and, and try to deconstruct it. Uh, and, and there's raising the issue, right, with being able to determine an abnormal condition and then raising it. But the response you get, right, this is a customer supplier pairing or connection, the mm-hmm. response you get, I think, is even more, more important because if the response you get when you escalate an issue and you pull the end on court or whatever the mechanism is, depends on the mood of the boss, depends on who the boss is, depends on the day of the week or the or what shift you're on, then it's not going to be effective because people are going to be thinking about what response they're going to get before they decide to pull. Yeah. And then you don't have a standard for what what uh, an abnormal condition really is anyway, because it's it's too dependent on the human. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, in a good TPS system or lean system, it's reflux. Like I've heard people from Toyota say only half jokingly that, you know, uh, everybody has two jobs and there's many versions of this. Everyone has two jobs uh, expression. But I've heard people say everyone's got two jobs, show up to work on time and pull the end on cord when there's a problem. You know, like when that becomes reflex, there's no fear, there's no hesitation. Even if you suspect there's a potential problem, pull the cord. And and there's a similar mindset in healthcare organizations that are building a good culture of safety, of teaching people in the operating room to raise a concern, even if it's just a possible concern. And if it turns out the concern wasn't really a problem, then, okay, thank you for speaking up. There's no punishment, retribution, shame. Uh, for speaking up um, in a, in a well-intended way, you know, so there's, there's that dynamic. And then, you know, I mean, again, this comes back, I think, you know, making it safe to speak up in healthcare. I've heard far too many nurses talk about a dynamic where um, if they ask for help, which is one reason for an and on cord pull, um, they get labeled as being weak, you know, that, that, that you should be tough. You should be able to do it yourself. But unfortunately, you know, the, the supervision structure is such where, if they were asking for help, they're not, they're, there's not that same kind of um, system uh, and, and structure to come and respond uh, to a call for help anyway. So there's, there's two sides of that coin where people say, like, uh, it's futile. Why, 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 why bother speaking up? And then there might be fear of, of punishment or blame or, or being labeled as bad. I hope, I hope you don't see that anymore in manufacturing companies. Well, I think, I think it's, it's easy to see some of that and and uh you know it is it is uh because of the regulation and the oversight both aviation and healthcare uh, do have you have out external reporting requirements right. and and so that's that's led i used to work with the air ambulance industry which is a combination of aviation and healthcare and and it was actually a very poor safety record in the industry because if you reported a, a near miss, you would be sitting, you'd be grounded doing paperwork for, for three months. And so you really wanted to make sure before you reported anything. Um, yeah. And I think in manufacturing, a lot of manufacturing cultures have changed. But I think the one thing pushing in the other direction is scrutiny by customers. 
right? I don't mean I don't mean public customers, but if you're not an OEM, if you're in the tier producing for other other companies, that ability to raise issues with a customer uh, and not end up in 17 meetings as a result <laughs> is the same dynamic of you know is there a healthy let's raise the issues let's talk about them and get all the right resources to them rather than appearing like we're out of control. Yeah. Well, I think, and then there's a couple other issues John raised in, in the article. You know, one is the idea of, um, you know, being able to see the difference between normal and abnormal. And, you know, in healthcare, if we don't have clear standards around what normal is, if we don't have clear standardized work, if we don't have people um, going out and checking to see if um, people are following the standardized work, and, and what I really mean is, you know, are they able to follow the standardized work? Um, if we don't know what normal is, it's, you know, it's impossible to know what abnormal is to be able to, to raise the flag. And, you know, I think it's just one other, you know, thought that comes to mind when I hear about um, normal from abnormal. I've heard that being, um, I've heard that as expressed as a definition of visual management, um, visual management being tools, visuals, uh, methods that help you see the difference between normal and abnormal right now. And, and I think that's a better definition of visual management. Sometimes people talk about posting signs and posting metrics. And well, I think, you know, visual management is supposed to be like very real time so we can see the problem. And then hopefully we have a way of asking for help or pulling the cord or whatever we call it. Yeah, and I think that it's an important distinction because, and it goes back to the point you made earlier about asking for help and appearing weak. If the definition of an Andon poll is needing help, then it's really a combination of an abnormal condition plus the competence of the person dealing with it. And, and really, the competence should be relevant. Um, it shouldn't be, I need help. It should be, there's an abnormal condition. Mm -hmm. and, and the person who's very competent versus uncompetent should should have the same reaction um, to, to the abnormal condition because it's the only way we really get to understand how our system is working. If, um, if we only get to understand, you know, how our system is working depending on the filter of the person who's closest to the work, uh, then we'll never get an accurate view of what's really going on because the person's competence uh, papers over the, the, the reasons we have abnormal conditions. So I think that's it's an area where people get this wrong often, which is um, defining and on polls as the person needing help based on their level of competence mm, right. versus whether or not the system is uh, having mm -hmm. trouble. And that's that's an important distinction to get. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I mean, a person asking for help because there's a system problem. Um, yeah. I, I wasn't trying to ascribe blame to the person needing help because it, the, 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 the person had a problem. If, they, if there's a skill yeah. issue, that's I, I would argue that's a system issue. Exactly. Exactly. And. And then that's how we get our, our information about how our system is working and allow us to design our, our, our Kaizen on top of that. Uh, once we understand what's, what's working and what's not working, regardless of the competence of the people that have to deal with it. So, yeah. One, one other you know, point I was going to bring up again, kind of just referencing healthcare is, you know, uh, when, when we watch the Toyota assembly line, when it has a tack time of 50 or 55 seconds, if somebody pulls an hand on cord, 
and the problem isn't resolved within cycle, the line stops, right? And so that, that's part of core TPS uh, approach of um, not passing on defects, of, of putting quality first. And I think in healthcare, when people frame and on as, you know, quote unquote, stop the line system, they get really sidetracked and say like, well, you know, they bring up scenarios that are reasonable, like patient is under anesthesia, they're in the middle of a procedure, uh, there's some sort of problem, we're not gonna just stop the line and leave the patient under anesthesia longer to do root cause problem solving. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> and in this case, quality first means not leaving the patient under anesthesia longer than necessary, but hopefully you know, like immediate or, you know, some, some people talk about real time problem solving. You know, I think, think there's a question around how real time is real time enough. I would argue after the case, like you might be able to stop the line and not start the next procedure if it's not a life or death emergency surgery. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's one dynamic where, you know, people say, oh, you know, a hospital is not a factory. Fair enough. <laughs> so let's, let's adapt these methods um, to healthcare. Yeah, and I, I think the adaption to the environment is is important to understand. You know, it, it's it's not about stopping the line; it's about being able to connect to the problem, right? So, do you bring in an extra resource, a charge nurse, a CMO, whatever that might be, to the situation above the system, right? So the system yeah. can carry on. Um, and, and and so we see this a lot in product development, for example where we rely heavily on these gates, where we might only have five or six gates in a product development cycle. And so what we, what we do is we batch sort of the review of the product and the market and the alignment and the feasibility and all these big questions. But because we've batched it, right, we've lost all this time. So we might've lost five months of work. And right. then we get to a gate, which is our first chance to tell normal versus abnormal. Mm-hmm. But the consequences of stopping at that point because we've already invested so much and lost so much time we just continue on and, and so it's where I, I strongly encourage people to design their system not with more gates but with more checkpoints with milestones hmm. or, or smaller increments of being able to determine abnormal versus abnormal so that we reduce the magnitude of having to pause and figure out what the problem is and and again, that's, that goes back to the adoption of, to the conditions, how do we change the system to enable us to respond appropriately when these problems come up? Yeah. And, you know, John, you know, it's funny, he, he posed the question, and I think he, it's funny, he, he I think, poses a, a strong um, you know, argument here about and on cord being really critical. He says, you know, there's a different feeling when walking into a company that has an and-on system, um, I would agree. He says, when I see well-functioning and-on systems, and he says later, you know, it's difficult to fake this. You know, it tells me the organization is highly committed to lean. Um, That's funny, at the end he says, well, it's not to say an organization can't be lean without a robust and rigorous and-on system. And I'm like, well, I don't think he's kind of hedging his bets here, but um, I, I thought he made a clear argument that if, you know, I, I think it's not binary, lean, not lean, but I think somebody, if they're on a serious lean journey, has got to have some form of um, some variation of an and on cord approach. Yeah, and I, I think fundamentally it's, again, you're not going to build a system, no matter how many standards you put in place, you're not going to build a system 
that works all the time under all conditions. Yeah. So you're going to face abnormalities. What do you do then? And if you don't have a mechanism for that, it's hard to, it's hard to manage your way through those, through those deviations as you continue to improve. And I, whatever you want to call it, I think dealing with those abnormalities is, is fundamental to being a lean thinking organization. Yeah. So we'll, we'll link to that article in the show notes. Um, again, it was by John Miller, the best indicator of success with lean. Was there anything else you wanted to add? Um, thoughts about the article, Jamie? No, I think we've, we've probably uh, covered more than it was a fairly brief article. So we may have, we may have uh, dug deeper than John ever intended, but uh, I do think it's very interesting, uh, interesting topic that perhaps doesn't get enough airtime. So that's I'm glad we got to, got to discuss it. Yeah. Well, a, a short article can be thought provoking. You know, so I, I like it when somebody writes in the tone of it's not I have all the answers, but I'm going to make you think. And I think John certainly accomplished that. John's good at that. John right. Upton is Absolutely. Yeah. So um, we're going to next uh, address a listener question. And the question is, what are your end of year routines or standard work? Jamie? Yeah, so this is, you know, this is interesting. Um, obviously, we saved this question for this episode since we're we're coming up on it rapidly. Um, and, and theoretically, you, know, you might say that, you know, one month should be the same as the next. But but the end of the year does provide a nice uh, a nice opportunity to sort of disconnect a little bit, bit step back and start to look at things. Um, so, so I like to I like to enter the year very fresh, uh, very clean, very oriented. Um, so I, I've definitely adopted some standards that I've used for quite a while, and um, and and I think you know even in my worst years I I do all of these things in a in a, in a pretty clean way. So um, you know really the first thing sort of as I wind down the work days is really and I, I do try to maintain this regularly anyway but I definitely get all my inboxes down to inbox equals zero. Um, and of course, you know, hours later it can you know, pop repopulate, but, but um, it's going to get less, going to get less traffic during that time frame. Yeah. Uh, if you count all my email addresses uh, from you know, sort of charity work to, uh, to business to, you know, an old account I use just to subscribe to stuff, I end up with about six inboxes but but I really want to get all of them down to inbox equals zero, at least at least headed into or out of the work year. Um, and, and I do the same with my paperwork. I end up with things that I I might want to read. And and uh, so I end up with a pile on my desk and I, I get through all of that. I might read some things. I might kind of go, hey, this sat here all year. I clearly don't want to read it. So I'll just discard it. Right? Clearly not going to. It's not about getting everything. It's about kind of you know, five essing that some of that to get rid of the stuff that I don't really need. And right. so those are some tasks that kind of allow me to clear my mind as well as my, my office, both digitally and physically. Um, and, and then I, I definitely spend some time reflecting on goal achievement. You know, what did I, what, what goals did I abandon? Um, what goals did I make progress on? What goals did I, did I achieve easier than I thought? So, you know, I look at it from all different aspects, both the goal setting process as well as um, uh, sort of my, my operating mode. Right. And, and there'll be several goals that just uh, failed because either because they it turns out they weren't really that important to me 
or because I didn't really set up a good enough system to ensure that attention uh, to it. Um, so, so with the benefit of that reflection, kind of looking at cause and effect, then I start to go into setting new goals. Um, and and uh, I actually have a template that I've used for quite a long time where I set both long and short-term goals. And I look at the goal, uh, the benefit of achieving that goal, what what's in the way, what obstacles do I need to overcome? What skills or knowledge do I need to add to do it? What help do I need? And then I start to break down into actions and and even you know a date for the for the goal itself. Yeah. So, so that that takes a while, um, and I, I usually at least find somebody that I can talk through that set of goals with uh, before I, I lock them in too 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 hard. Um, but it's not just a metric, right? Uh, there's um, uh, there's there's lots of uh, editorials out there, and people, especially if you go to corporate training, they talk about smart goals. Um, and, right. and I don't know, I don't know your first exposure to smart goals, but I think back in it's a while ago, uh, it's a while ago. I think back in the early '90s, I was exposed to this first. But if you even Google smart goals and click on, I don't know, the first several items, you're not even going to get the same definition of what SMART stands for, Mm. Um, which is, you know, which to me tells me that uh, it's not scientifically derived. It was it it was cute uh, and it all sounds good. But, you know, a lot of times it's specific, measurable, achievable, realistic uh, or uh, relevant um, and then timely. But, you know, if if you, uh, for example, if you get the M and the T, and I believe M and T are all that's required. Well, by definition, you've made it specific. Um, and if you can't pick relevant goals, then what's what are you doing here, right? So, so yeah. I, I think in the end, that's all you need. Uh, those, those the M and the T. Uh, so that's that's what I tend to focus on. And then I break down again how I get there, and then I I, I finish my routine by updating my leader standard work, um, which which I have found using a weekly cycle of, of, of tasks. Um, but I, I use my goals, I use my reflection, and I try to update, update my system of work uh, to help enhance my, my ability to be successful. Because I honestly, I don't do that real time enough. And usually by the end of the year, I find my own standard work is uh, um, uh, ceasing to be relevant or effective. And it needs that it needs that reflect that re- refreshment to uh, to make it effective for me. Yeah. Um, so I usually try yeah. to get that all done by the time I I get into the first full work week of the year. Yeah. Well, I tell you, it, it sounds like you are way more disciplined about about these things uh, than I am. Yet alone, it's just inbox zero to begin with. But I mean, I think it is natural that. You know, uh, look, you know, we, we people arbitrarily cut time up into these annual uh, blocks of time. I get, you know, it has to do with revolutions around the sun, you know, but it's this arbitrary cutoff. And, you know, oh, well, let's reflect upon the previous year. Let's thinking upon the next year. There's a lot of history and tradition in doing that. But, you know, strategy A3s for an organization um, are, are chunked up in those annual cycles. And like you said, when we slow down a bit at the end of the year, even though you and I are both on the road the week before Christmas, so we're going to be, right. we're, we're charging right through uh, the end of the year almost. But 
Yeah, I do want to be better at consciously taking time to reflect. I, I, I think, you know, some of the things you talked about remind me of some of my end of your practices. So I, I stopped writing on the blog for a couple of weeks because, you know, frankly, people um, aren't reading as much. And so I do sometimes work on the blog, meaning like, you know, behind the scenes, um, trying to make tweaks that make the, the, the site run faster, make the site look a little bit better. Um, doing things like that where I'm not continually working on that. Um, I, I sometimes do think about, you know, what do I want to stop doing in the next year? I'll give credit to, uh, you know, Matthew E. May and others who, who talk about the idea of a stop doing list instead of just continually adding to the to list, to do list. Um, like for me, the Lean Whiskey podcast is not on a stop doing list. I hope you agree, Jamie. <laughs> hundred percent. Absolutely. But it is a good practice to, to think about what to stop doing because we can't just keep adding. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I, I, I could be more deliberate about um, in, in the past, uh, you know, there, there's organizations I've worked with that have encouraged writing what, you know, what you might call a personal development A3. And, you know, you can do that kind of on an annual cycle, like a strategy A3 of like, well, Let's look back at the last year. What were my goals? What did I accomplish? What went well? What could have been better? What am I going to do differently in 2020? Or that can be you know, done on a much more um, you know, continuous evaluation basis. Um, I guess you know, the, you know, the question asked about end of year routines. Um, I've got some practices, but maybe one reflection and something I could do better is making turning that into a little bit more intentional standard work. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it is, um, you know, the, the last week of travel aside, you do have generally a couple weeks where you can travel. Um, you know, I actually, the one thing I did new this year was uh, we, we issued sort of a, a social media blackout for December um, mm. to stop producing any content, although this this will be the exception to that. But I think it's a, yeah. um, you know, th this is always, you know, this is less work and more invigorating and fun. That's <laughs> fun. Um, but um, but but yeah, we even took it a step further to sort of get more into reflection, reflection mode. But it certainly does happen somewhat naturally in the sense that you you do have you know, you're not going to do a lot of client calls on the um, on the 26th of December. So uh, so it, it certainly uh, helps enable that, that those opportunities. Yeah. Well, do we as we talk about wrapping up the year, do you want to wrap up the podcast here? Um, talking about just kind of a couple of fun questions to wrap it up. Yeah, yeah, I think this will probably be part of our standard as we head into I don't know if we call it season two for 2020 with Lean Whiskey, but um, uh, but since we're, we're we started off with some holiday topics um, with our our favorite, you know, or at least a good selection of whiskey for the holidays. We have some holiday fun questions as well. So uh, we have two of them here. I'll start with the first one, which sort of a, a favorite uh, a personal or nostalgic holiday tradition. Um, so what would be what would be yours? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, put up the Christmas tree, have a good dinner with family in Texas you know, sort of try to just relax and appreciate, um, appreciate everything. But, you know, one thing, I mean, it's not, 
classic tradition uh, for, for, for Christmas. But I, I, I do get sucked into sort of the nonstop stream of, uh, of endless college football bowl games. Um, you know, like uh, the Baha- the Popeye's Chicken Bahamas Bowl or whatever it's called now. You know, there's a game on every day. And like to me, that's my background noise for the holiday season. Yeah, well, that's I mean, that's that's fun because you can you know, they're, they're games that aren't normally played. They're played once a year. They're matchups that you don't get to see very often. And um, again, they, they, they very purposely plan it so you can spend a lot of different days watching a game. Yeah, I think a lot of these are made for TV games. A lot of the European leagues take a break. Mm. Yeah, well, exactly, because it's you know they're they're away from home and and uh, you know a lot of the a lot of the fans that would normally go to the game are 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 home anyway, so they're not going to go. But Premier League in England does the same thing. You know, they have famous for having a a set of matches on Boxing Day, which is a great day to to sit and watch. but but my you know mine is uh you know similar in the sense of you know what do I like to watch what do I like to just unwind with and and what's what's become a tradition really only in, a, in the last five or six years maybe is uh, watching White Christmas uh, with with Bing Crosby uh, on Christmas Day mm. so uh, you know we'd get up we'd do presents we'd we'd go over to my my in laws for breakfast and uh, after that and and then you know come home and. Um, you know, now that the kids are old enough that they're not, you know, playing with Legos, uh, it, it's it's a nice kind of, you know, put put the put the movie on. You know, it's great classic music and uh, a fun story. And so that that particular movie has been um, uh, it was it was actually gifted to me on, on DVD uh, a while back because my wife knew I, I enjoyed it. And uh, mm-hmm. so now every every Christmas Day we watch White Christmas. And that's that's one of my. One of my favorites. Hmm. I don't know if I've ever seen that movie, but I don't. I don't think I've. I don't think I've seen. It's a Wonderful Life either. I have seen oh, a Christmas. Right. I, what? Am I missing out? You. You are. It's. It's. You know. Uh, I, it's interesting. It's. It's a Wonderful Life is. Um. In, in some regards, just happens around Christmas, and a lot of it has relatively little to do about Christmas. But it's. It's a. It's a pretty emotional movie. It's very well acted and, and uh, I, I certainly watched that as well but it's um it's almost you know, it's, it's quite deep in a lot of ways which is where mm. white christmas is so so much not deep it's it's just yeah. just fun and makes it makes a better christmas day movie yeah well one i, I do pick up um almost every year because i think you know, one of the cable channels runs it nonstop. a christmas story i mean i've seen that movie I don't know how many times. So I'll call that a holiday a Christmas tradition too. It, it's, it's also a classic, maybe not quite as old. Yeah. But um, here, let me, let me come back just to the Bahamas bowl real quick because um, yeah, I was remembering correctly. So for the first couple of years of the game, it was called the Popeye's Bahamas bowl, but get this, here's a manufacturing connection. It says after um, the company declined to renew the sponsorship, uh, Elk Grove Village, Illinois, which I think is in the Chicago suburbs, which uh, it says here, it's the home to the largest industrial park in the United States. They picked up the sponsorship in 2018. You wouldn't you wouldn't guess what they renamed the bowl. It's not the Elk Grove Bowl. Get this. It's called the Makers Wanted Bahamas Bowl. Huh. That's a 
it doesn't it doesn't exactly bring clear to the average football watcher. But, uh, I mean, at first I thought, oh, is this sponsored by Maker's Mark Bourbon? But I think your reaction of, huh, is probably how most of the viewing public would uh, react. So I'm sorry, Elk Grove Village. I, I, we'll, we'll see if you get your uh, your money's worth from the sponsorship. It might not have been very expensive. Maybe not. And maybe, you know, one manufacturer opens up a facility and it's paid for itself. Uh, so I can't blame them for trying to be creative. Because makers, we, we like makers, people who, who make stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Elk Road. I've been to Elk Road. It's a, I don't say it's worth visiting, but it's a good it's a good place. For people. I do hope I do hope this works out for them. We we apologize to our listeners from Pittsburgh and Elk Grove Village and the Bahamas. For any comments we might have made today. Well, you know, it's, it's what happens when you drink whiskey and comment on, on bowl naming traditions. So. <laughs> All right. So the final question here is, comes back to traditions. Do you have a favorite carol or seasonal song and why? So, so my favorite has always been Carol of the Bells. Mm. Um, you know, there's so many different versions of it. Um, and it's just so melodic. And uh, and difficult, right? So it's not, you know, you can you can be walking down the street and singing Jingle Bells or White Christmas or a whole bunch of other, a particularly difficult song. You're not going to just start start belting that one out. So it it doesn't get as much airtime as some of the others. And uh, again, so melodic. It's just it, it's it's always been one of my favorites uh, of of the whole set. But I. I love, I don't say I love all of them. I certainly love turning on on Christmas music, but Carol of the Bells has always been a favorite of mine. How about yours? Um, well, it's also, again, I keep bringing, I'm that guy who now won't shut up about going to Japan. Uh, but they, you do hear nonstop Christmas music in uh, in Japan. They have embraced some of the tradition of decorations and music and lights and presents um, in Japan. So one of those songs I've heard a lot and uh, always catches my attention is Sleigh Ride. And the, I think the part of the, the warm uh, place in my heart for this is when I played percussion in high school band, we would always play Sleigh Ride at a holiday concert and so then you, you get to play unusual instruments as a percussion, percussionist. So you get to play the sleigh bells, which is fun, or the best thing. And, and every time I hear the song, um, there's there's like a whip crack. And I can't sing, but it's like da 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 It's terrible. Sorry. But I can no, get that. That's an iconic moment in the song for sure. Yeah, but I can get the in the right place every time. And the way we made that sound in the band was that we had this hinged kind of, if you open it up, L-shaped piece of wood with a hinge and you slap it together. So it's not a hand clap, it's a crack. And every time I hear that song, I either snap my fingers or tap my <laughs> foot at each of those uh, each of those spots. That song gets stuck in my head. Well, that's a, that's a neat that's a neat personal connection. I can imagine that brings you back to a fun time. Yeah, so I guess that wraps it up for uh, our last episode of the year. Yeah, well, it's episode ten. Um, what, did we do five or six of them together? I think six. Gosh, I don't. I think six. Yeah, I think I think six. Um, uh, I, I, I 
I'm sure I have notes that make it clear somewhere, but it's about that. Uh, we, we started uh, creating a spreadsheet that, that listed the whiskeys that we've had, and we've had some guest hosts. And, and I bring that up partly because Jamie is going to do an episode in January with a guest host. Um, maybe I'm putting you on the spot again, but do you, do you want to preview that? Well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll wait and make sure it happens. But um, <laughs> yeah, I thought it'd be fun to fun to do a um, an episode with somebody that I I know enjoys whiskey and and uh, we always we always enjoy talking chops. So uh, we'll, we'll try to do that early in January and uh, and share it with our listeners. So you're gonna leave a little bit of mystery in case it doesn't work a little, out. A little bit of mystery, but I'll make sure we, we, right. we deliver something. All right. So we are going to not stop doing this in 2020. Um, we look forward to doing more episodes. Jamie, I look forward to doing more with you. We'll 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 have guest hosts occasionally and and do more of this uh, in the future. Right. Absolutely. Always fun. Yeah. So I want to remind people, if this is your first time listening, um, we'd love to have you um, subscribe to the podcast if you want to listen um, to past episodes, you can find all of those in a number of places. You can go to leanwhiskey.com. You can spell it however you prefer to spell whiskey with a K-E-Y at the end or leanwhiskey uh, K-Y at the end. Um, you can uh, th Those pages forward uh, to my website. I, I feel I don't mean to be greedy about that, but it forwards. Maybe uh, it just does. Uh, leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey. But if you prefer Jamie's website, you can go to you can find it at jflinch.com slash lean whiskey. Can they spell it either way? You know, I don't think so. I think I think they spell it K-E-Y, but I'll have to I'll have to check oh. now. Okay. Well, maybe there, there's there's some website maintenance over the holidays. You can set up a, a, a pretty simple redirect if people spell it. Yeah, that shouldn't be hard to do. Without the E. But an, another thing that's not hard to do is looking for us uh, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. Yeah, and we, we really do appreciate, you know, rate us, review it, subscribe. You know, these these are things if you think other people might enjoy stumbling upon and finding uh, this podcast, those things really do help. They do make a difference. And so if you get any value out of this, we're not asking for donations, but just a little effort to rate, review, and subscribe would help us out a great deal. Thank you. Yeah. We don't have sponsors. Yeah, all I guess of we're the, ready to uh, wrap up. So Yeah, I guess we're ready to wrap up. <laughs> I think the tech, so, the, the uh, tech Grinch didn't want, oh, we're talking over each other. The tech Grinch is getting us here at the end. Ugh, Mr. Grinch. <laughs> He'll, 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 uh, his heart will grow three sizes or, or, or maybe his, you know, a little whiskey will warm his heart and that'll help too. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll at least keep trying and, uh, cheers to you. Cheers, Jamie.